From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. China arrests a cop and accuses him of corruption, kicks a journalist out of Hong Kong, and America responds. It is China Day on Foreign Edition, the podcast of foreign affairs from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I am Joseph Sternberg, coming to you from our luxury podcasting studio on the banks of the River Thames in London, uh, while Mary Kissel is still away. I am joined on the line to talk all things uh, China and Chinese influence today with my colleague Hugo Rustall, joining us from his accustomed, secure, undisclosed location in Asia. Hi, Hugo. Hi, Joe. Well, and we are going to spend our entire podcast today in your part of the world. Uh, I'm talking okay. about a bunch of uh, Chinese stories that have been hitting the headlines over the past few days. Uh, you know, as I, I mentioned when we were just starting a minute ago, we've got a very high-profile and very strange case unfolding as a gentleman named Meng Hung Wei, uh, who has been the chief of Interpol, the global uh, police cooperation agency based in France, uh, disappears for, what, about a week, I think, maybe a bit more, uh, resurfaces having sent an alarming text message to his wife, resurfaces in uh, the custody of the Chinese government in Beijing, accused of corruption. And at the same time, we've got a uh, journalist from the Financial Times, uh, Victor Mallet, getting his visa for uh, Hong Kong revoked for hosting a, an event at the Foreign Correspondence Club uh, in that city that uh, you know, really ticked off the Chinese authorities because it was dealing with the political situation in Hong Kong. So, Hugo, I mean, maybe you can talk us through these two stories. It seems to me that the big theme here is uh, Beijing really being prepared to flex its muscles, even when it knows that doing so uh, is going to call a lot of unwelcome global attention to itself. Right. So in the case of Meng Hongwei, what seems to have happened is that uh, he was arrested while he was at home visiting China and accused of corruption. But he just disappeared into the maw of party discipline system, which is uh, notoriously opaque. Um, he sent a, a text message after he landed in Beijing, as you as you alluded to, with a picture of a knife and saying, wait for my call, suggesting that, uh, he, that he had been uh, perhaps knifed in the back or was uh, facing the knife. And, uh, you know, it's a reminder that China's uh, justice system does not uh, adhere to the rule of law and is an extremely crude um, system for, for dealing with corruption. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon for party officials, even relatively high party officials, to, uh, to suffer various forms of torture including uh, deprivation of sleep and, and uh, shackling in uncomfortable positions. Um, so uh, that is a, a signal uh, sent both to the international community that um, Chinese uh, officials uh, will be rolled up uh, even when it causes great embarrassments uh, to the Chinese government. And it sends us a message, I think, to the domestic audience also that uh, there is no escape. Uh, if you're a corrupt official, the Chinese government will uh, come after you no matter what. I, I mean, I, I think that the, the thing that bears focusing on here is actually the international angle of this, because um, you know, Mr. Meng wasn't just any um, you know, Chinese official. He was also a, a Chinese national who was a very senior official at the top of a fairly high-profile global uh, group. I think that most people have heard of Interpol at one time or another. It is uh, crucially important for a lot of global law enforcement uh, activities because it is an informational clearinghouse for uh, the police around the world, uh, you know, trying to track crime across borders. 
And, you know, that angle is the thing that really jumps out at me here because, you know, the the mere fact that the regime in Beijing would somehow disappear a high-profile person actually is not as unusual as listeners might think it is. In fact, we've just uh, before this uh, had a case of a, a famous actress who hadn't been seen in public for a considerable amount of time and then suddenly emerges accused of various tax infractions. So, you know, this this phenomenon of uh, disappearances, even in the 21st century, isn't that unusual. I think what is unusual here is this element of thumbing the nose of the international community and of saying, you know, even if this person is somehow integrated into these global institutions, um, you know, in which the world's democracies also play an important role, you know, uh, the U.S., Western Europe, uh, you know, the, uh, Beijing will still do what it wants to do. Right. It was quite a coup for China to install its guy at the top of Interpol as president, even though that position doesn't uh, come with day-to-day responsibility for uh, putting out what's known as red notices for, for fugitives. It was it was quite a feather in their cap. And so uh, it does send uh, a considerable message that uh, China is not going to necessarily observe the niceties of international law when their political uh, exigencies uh, are more important to them. It, it's perhaps... Analogous also to uh, the sudden disappearance of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi in the in the embassy in in Istanbul. Another Saudi Arabia is another autocratic uh, government which just uh, is sending the message that it doesn't care what the international community thinks. Could also compare it to uh, the uh, assassination I- attempt in uh, Salisbury by the uh, Russian uh, military intelligence of a of a Russian ex spy. You know that that was clearly given the poison that they use going to be traced back to Russia, but. Uh, Putin obviously uh, cared much more about um, exacting revenge on a, on a traitor than uh, what the West, how the West would react. I, I think that touches on such an important uh, point in all of this because, um, you know, going back again to uh, Meng Hongwei and the Interpol story, but also you know, this shows up in a bunch of these other examples. There's been this long. Uh, attempt over the past 10, 15, 20 years to try to better integrate some of these regimes into the global system. And I think that the hope was somehow that, uh, you know, the democratic norms might start rubbing off or that, uh, you know, this process of forcing greater open you know, or encouraging greater openness to the outside world would lead to, uh, you know, useful political changes. This was particularly a theory in the case of China. Um, and, and yet we're discovering that that actually isn't true, that a lot of the old habits die hard and that when, uh, you know, Beijing feels that it has various interests at stake, whatever those interests might be in the case of uh, Meng Hongwei, it's not clear that we even know what uh, Beijing thinks is important about this case yet. Um, you know, Beijing will serve its own interests uh, first, even if that comes into conflict with whatever progress uh, you know, other people have thought that they were making in encouraging that regime to abide by some more global norms. Right. There's, there's a tendency now towards uh, self-confidence edging into uh, triumphalism and arrogance in, in China. And you see that in the Victor Mallet case in, in Hong Kong. Also, um, you know, Hong Kong has never uh, denied visas to journalists on political grounds before. It's something that's only happened on the mainland. And uh, so it's it's a major event in, in the territory. And 
it, it infringes both on freedom of speech and on freedom of the press because this event allowing a, a, an activist to speak was held at a time when you know his party was still legal, although the government was talking about making it illegal. And so tantrum that uh, the Chinese government threw uh, that the Foreign Correspondents Club was giving this young man a, a, a platform for his views um, really goes against the values of, of Hong Kong, uh, not to mention really the, the, the rule of law of Hong Kong. Um, so they, they don't mind undermining uh, Hong Kong's uh, autonomy and reputation, uh, even though that will have serious repercussions um, over time for uh, the people of Hong Kong, the economy of Hong Kong. Yeah, I think that we need to uh, flesh out for listeners a bit more some of the specifics of this uh, Victor Malik case that, that we've been talking about, because it really is... Um, you know, a, a shocking intrusion uh, by Beijing into Hong Kong affairs. So, of course, Hong Kong, uh, you know, about the size of New York City, former British colony, handed back over to uh, you know Beijing's sovereignty in 1997, but on the provision that you would have this one country, two systems uh, administration for at least 50 years after that, so up until 2047, that uh, was supposed to allow a greater degree of political openness in the territory. Um, and in fact, you know, although there are you know, constraints on the, the workings of the political system in Hong Kong, uh, you know, it traditionally, until a few years ago, had been much more open. Um, the press had been much freer, uh, political debate within the territory much, uh, much more vigorous than anything that was allowed on the mainland. And I think the hope in some places had been that uh, over time, that Hong Kong model would come to serve as an inspiration for political opening in the rest of China. And yet what we have here is, you know, Victor Mallet, a, a very well-regarded uh, journalist at the Financial Times, has spent many years uh, covering different parts of Asia. Uh, he had been posted for that newspaper in, in Hong Kong. Um, you know, I, I believe he has a, had a senior role within the Foreign Correspondence Club, which has been a major, right. uh, you know, social and political institution in, in the city because the FCC often hosts politically contentious talks. And because he hosted a uh, talk given by a local politician you know, a couple months ago that Beijing really objected to, uh, you know, now Victor Mallet is getting his, his visa withdrawn. He's going to have to leave the territory, no longer allowed to work there. So, I mean, this is really an assault on the free press. But it's also a, a real challenge to this notion that somehow, um, you know, freer parts of China, such as Hong Kong, would become an inspiration to political opening in the rest. Mm -hmm. um, and it's worth recalling that just uh, in the last couple of years, uh, several uh, booksellers within Hong Kong were selling books that were uh, politically sensitive, uh, typically bought by mainlanders who traveled to Hong Kong and then taken back onto the mainland. Uh, Beijing was upset with these, uh, these booksellers and uh, uh, kidnapped one of them from, from within Hong Kong uh, also abducted one from from Thailand um, and uh, forced them to make uh, televised confessions um, and detained them on the mainland. So uh, that also was a big shock within Hong Kong and, and assault to autonomy and the rule of law. Um, so they're talking now about passing uh, anti-subversion laws uh, in the territory, which are... Uh, which had been proposed in 2003, but met with such a uh, large backlash from the, the population. About a million people turned out on the streets to protest, and those laws were shelved. But uh, only temporarily, it seems, there's, 
there's now a move again to uh, pass those laws, which would make any sort of uh, attack on the Communist Party or or um, call for independence illegal and uh, uh, basically bring mainland-style law to Hong Kong. Now, it seems to me that the big unknown that we're starting to face now, both with the Interpol case and with um, you know, Victor Mallet, the, the journalist, being you know, pushed out of Hong Kong, is that there is that international connection. Um, however, I mean, first off, because with the Interpol case, it is a, such a high-profile international group. Uh, you know, people are paying attention to this. Um, you know, Mr. Meng's family live in uh, France, which is where the headquarters for Interpol is. Uh, so you have a foreign connection there. And there's also a foreign connection in Hong Kong because the 50 years of the one country, two systems uh, concept was a commitment that the Chinese government in Beijing made to the British as part of the process of negotiating the handover. So it seems to me that there is this really interesting question about as China becomes more assertive, um, you know, about exercising its will in some of these cases, how does it bump up against uh, some potentially interested foreign players here? And are some of those foreign parties going to be in a position or have the interest to try to push back on that? Right. And I think we'll we'll be talking in the next segment about uh, the South China Sea a little bit, um, where where China is is challenging global norms and international law um, to try to change the situation uh, de facto Uh, control over those waters. We have been talking China's attempts to expand the enforcement of its rules overseas. This is Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. The Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. Another new episode is coming soon, as we look at science, technology, and their influence on our lives. The Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. The future is closer than you think. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Welcome back to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm Joseph Sternberg, and I am in for Mary Kissel, joined again by my colleague on the line, Hugo Rustall, speaking to us from Asia. And as you uh, foreshadowed in our last segment, we are now actually going to turn our attention to uh, Washington, although we are still actually talking about China. Because a big foreign policy event that uh, listeners, especially in the U.S., might have missed amidst all of the controversy over the Supreme Court last week was uh, Vice President Mike Pence delivered a major speech to the Hudson Hudson Institute, a uh, think tank in Washington, about uh, the Trump administration policy toward China. And I, you know, to start our, the ball rolling on our discussion of this, I will just come right out and say that uh, this struck me as the sort of speech that I would have wished that President Trump himself would be able to deliver, except that you wonder if Trump would actually be able to get through something like this. It was a very well-articulated, you know, carefully reasoned description of uh, the U.S.-China relationship right now and a lot of the challenges in that. 
you know, looking beyond just a lot of the trade tensions that is in the news right now, to also talk about things in terms of the political and the diplomatic sphere. And you know, basically saying, I mean, my takeaway from this is to say, uh, you know, presidential administrations of both parties in Washington uh, for the past 15 to 20 years have pursued this notion that if um, you know, the world could induce China to open up to the rest of the world enough economically, the political changes would follow. And I, I gather my read is that the thrust of the speech is, no, the political change hasn't followed the way that we had hoped that it would uh, domestically in China. And in response to that and in response to some of the activities that we're seeing overseas from the Chinese government militarily in the South China Sea, um, in terms of various attempts at political interference in other countries, it's time for a rethink of the China strategy. I mean, if I got that basically right, do you think? Yes, I think uh, the subtext is engagement uh, has not worked. That doesn't mean we need to totally abandon engagement, but we need to push back on all of these individual um, things that China is doing to subvert global norms. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe it, it, it's edging towards, uh, I think the Chinese have, have characterized this speech uh, as engagement with containment. And I think that's that's probably not a bad uh, a bad summarization. Um, it's not fully containment yet. It's not fully uh, abandoning engagement, but there's a mix there. And uh, some have said that this is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think that's that's overegging it. You could say that it's tending in that direction. If China doesn't uh, change its behavior, uh, the U.S. will have to use uh, all of its uh, resources, uh, political, military, economic, to uh, to constrain China's behavior. I mean, one of the things that really jumped out at me as I was uh, you know, looking through the speech again, is how comprehensive it is, how it weaves together a story both about the economic engagement between uh, the U.S. and China and you know, a lot of the problems in that relationship, which don't even necessarily go to the bilateral trade balance. I mean, one of the real services or clarifying elements of the speech, I thought, was that it doesn't talk about, you know, specifically about the uh, trade deficit, although he does mention that. Um, but it has to do more with uh, the general commercial environment, the extent to which American companies are able to trade freely with China, to invest in the Chinese market without interference from the communist government in China. Uh, and, you know, I think that that's a helpful way of reorienting some of these economic discussions, because if you're only looking at a very narrow measure like the bilateral trade deficit that you, the U.S. has with China, you are going to miss a lot of the aspects of this commercial relationship involving intellectual property, uh, involving things like cultural goods. The, you know, he mentions the extent to which Hollywood now feels that it has to self-censor itself in order to sell, you know, distribute movies in China. You know, if you're only focusing on that bilateral deficit, you are missing all of these elements that arguably are far more important to American companies and American workers. Right. There's a sense, I think, among the business community, which used to be China's biggest friend in Washington, that China, you know, was welcoming to them when it needed them. But now uh, now it feels that it it no longer needs them and uh, it, they don't get a fair shake in arbitration or regulation. They're harassed by uh, by uh, inspections and and other regulatory actions. And basically, they're always on the back foot um, in trying to compete within China. And there was a very revealing uh, 
story that was published by Bloomberg the same day as the Pence speech about uh, Chinese spies uh, installing uh, extremely small uh, integrated circuits chips onto the motherboards of servers that were being exported from China to uh, Apple, Amazon and other customers uh, for cloud services. And basically, these little chips hidden on the board um, created a backdoor for Chinese spies to then download the secrets of companies that were using those cloud services. So the the American uh, authorities believe that nearly 30 uh, companies had their uh, data siphoned off in in this way. Um, And it's it's really a quite um, audacious uh, uh, operation, in part because it throws into question the security of the entire uh, supply chain. Anytime a any sort of tech good goes through a Chinese company now, there has to be a question of whether uh, whether the, the spies are installing something on it. And uh, that um, I think that's probably self-defeating for China because, uh, you know, a lot of these supply chains now will have to be reoriented uh, to exclude China if these products are going to be used for any sort of sensitive applications. Now, I, you know, the other notable aspect of the Pence speech, though, is that it moves also beyond, I mean, all of these very important economic concerns. I think we're starting to filter into the, the you know, pu- public awareness. And it also looks a lot at the political aspect of all of this, because you know, it hasn't just been um, you know, Chinese attempts at high-tech espionage or industrial espionage or forced techno- technology transfers into China. Um, but the vice president is also talking about uh, you know, is presented as a fairly comprehensive influence effort by the Chinese government to try to um, you know, partly use its own financial resources as a form of influence in the, the ways that it um, you know, loans money to other you know, countries, particularly in the developing world. Uh, you know, those loans often have various political strings attached to them. Um, but also, you know, the extent to which China has been trying to use various cultural, um, you know, academic exchanges as forms of, you know, trying to broaden the influence. And, you know, it's not just about the, the sort of public diplomacy that any government would engage in, but, you know, what uh, Pence and others are talking about here is a very concerted effort to really, uh, you know, shape or or intimidate uh, your various scholars or students in terms of what they write about China uh, to make sure that there is less deviation from the established, uh, you know, Communist Party interpretation of various events. And I think uh, what I'm hearing is that uh, the the U.S. has discovered China is conducting um, united front operations at the Department of Communist Party that uh, conducts these kinds of things. It's similar to how what it did in Australia. And that uh, that caused a big backlash in the last couple of years. And the Australian government amended its uh, political contribution laws um, and uh, generally tightened up the uh, the controls over foreign uh, people working as foreign agents. But what the Australians discovered is that the Chinese effort was, uh, in their words, covert, coercive and corrupt. That is uh, totally non-transparent um, they tried to coerce overseas Chinese to espouse the uh, pro-China line. So if those, if what I'm hearing uh, proves to be true and there are cases that come to light, um, there could be a, a very major backlash, uh, I think, within the U.S. political system against China. Well, and, and that political angle is, uh, you know, so interesting in all of this because, of course, Washington has been consumed uh, for about two years now 
with this Russian meddling narrative, um, you know, which is a combination of the reality that it does appear that Russia was trying to meddle in uh, U.S. politics or the electoral process in various ways, uh, you know, coupled with a, a much more of a stretch, this theory that somehow there was conclusion, uh, collusion between the Kremlin and uh, elements of Donald Trump's campaign uh, you know, for president in 2016. What seems to be opening up here is sort of a new front in this foreign influence battle. Um, you know, we're, we're suddenly now we are focusing on China. And in some ways, uh, you know, what little we can see in public of it now, the Chinese effort seems to be a lot more sophisticated and potentially more uh, damaging than the kind of activity that we saw from Russia. I mean, my general impression is that the, the Russians are keen to use uh, misinformation and, and you know, various online disinformation tools, uh, mainly to try to sow confusion within a political system and distrust. Whereas so far, we're, you know, we may be seeing hints that the Chinese are actually being much more strategic in terms of trying to shape uh, public opinion in particular electoral districts or states where they think that it can be most helpful to them. Right. The evidence that uh, Trump and Pence have presented so far is not terribly convincing. Um, you know, some of the things they're citing are, are fairly normal uh, behavior by any government, which is sort of paying to, to put their message out uh, in the public sphere. It's, it is transparent. It's not corrupt. But there are hints in, in what Pence said that uh, there's a, a more sinister kind of influence operation also taking place. Um, so I'm waiting to see the evidence. But I think you're right that it could be um, this kind of operation can be much more effective in advancing national interest than Russia's approach, which, as you say, uh, tends to be just a, a kind of a, a wrecking uh, operation uh, just to uh, create uh, confusion and, and distrust and undermine faith in democracy. Well, we are going to have to uh, add these to the long list of stories that we are uh, following week by week for listeners on this podcast. But for right now, uh, we are out of time on, on this uh, Monday morning. So we will uh, leave things there, but I will thank Hugo for joining me. Please follow him on Twitter, uh, at Hugo Restall, all one word. And uh, give me a follow while you're at it. That's at Joseph Sternberg, also all one word. And be sure to follow this podcast wherever you get your audio content to make sure that you are kept up to date on every edition of Foreign Edition as we track uh, global mayhem and chaos disorder week by week. This has been Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thanks for listening.